The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Goldfarb, editor of Reuters Breaking Views. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Jeff Graham. He runs a small hedge fund and teaches at Columbia Business School. Jeff's written a terrific new book called Dear Chairman. It's a sweeping tour through a style of investing that's very popular these days called activist investing, where shareholders write letters trying to agitate for change at companies. Jeff has collected 80 years worth of these letters. Today's so-called activists, like Bill Ackman and Dan Loeb, are in the news practically every day now, with aggressive campaigns against companies like Herbalife and Sotheby's. But as Jeff's book makes clear, today's activists are following a playbook that was written over nearly a century by some of the most storied investors of all time. There are plenty of big names in here. Benjamin Graham, the godfather of value investing, Warren Buffett, Ross Perot, who had a really frustrating experience at General Motors. There's even a story of a wife turning on her husband and the fascinating tale of a company that developed the machinery to make soft gel capsules. All this history can tell us a lot about what's happening in the markets today. Here's my conversation with Jeff Graham. Jeff, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about the book and why you decided to write this book now. Sure. Well, the book is it's a collection of case studies, and each of them is, is an activist intervention from history. And, you know, I originally had the idea of just uh, doing a book that uh, collected, like, these angry shareholder letters. I collect them on the side for fun, <laughs> and I had a collection. And as I decided uh, how the book would look, it seemed like a big manual with a bunch of letters, and it would be pretty boring. And so it kind of evolved into a narrative history book, as it is now. And so now all the letters are just in the appendix, and you can read them, and, like, they're very fun, but they aren't the core of the book, really. And one of the great things, I think, about the book is that you take the time to sort of, as you say, stitch them together and sort of mm-hmm. tell a narrative history. But one of the, uh, the most amazing things is the book starts with a piece that's almost lost to history, which is, you know, this idea that Benjamin Graham, who we all think of as this sort of storied value investor, really kind of <laughs> like started out as an activist. Yeah. And, and you've got this amazing letter. Tell us about it. Oh, and, and he did this a lot. Um, he often invested in companies that were very cash rich, but were stingy with the cash. And he would compel them to pay dividends or to pay out their cash balance. So this case is the Northern Pipeline Company. It was the first time that he did that in, in his career. So it was his introduction to activism and thus uh, kind of the, the launching point. And it's an amazing tale in the sense that we didn't have the kind of financial reporting then Mm -hmm. we do today. So he actually goes and starts digging through some filings that most people don't have access to or didn't go looking for and finds this amazing arbitrage um, opportunity there. Yeah. Well, it's a pipeline company. And the pipelines reported to the ICC that also collected all the railroad data. And so all of the analysts would read the ICC reports on the railroads, like to learn the financial information. And so Ben Graham is reading the railroad report, and he sees just a small table on the pipelines. And there's a footnote under that that says, taken from the pipeline report. He's like, I didn't know there was a pipeline report. So he went down to DC, and he requested all these uh, documents. And he's holding these uh, uh, pipeline reports. It turns out all of the pipelines are grossly overcapitalized, and they're hoarding that cash. And so he he picked the, the northern pipeline to be the main target and he compelled them to pay out that cash to Yeah, it's, it's amazing, uh, an amazing piece of history that starts out. Like, and you sort of tag this as almost the start of activist investing? I yeah, mean, I mean, if you look back to like the Dutch East India Company and, 
you know, and even in the U.S. In, in the 1800s, there were public companies, you know, were bridges and toll roads and stuff that had involved uh, shareholders. You know, so Ben Graham was more the beginning of the fiduciary investor era. Okay. And I think between there's an, an, an academic paper that said between uh, 1900 and 1949 that there were like you know six or seven of these, and that's all they could find. Okay. And so it was the beginning of that movement, and that of course has blossomed into what we have now. Okay. Now, obviously, like Benjamin Graham, we don't typically today think of Warren Buffett as an <coughs> activist investor, but he also has a pretty rich and storied history, wrote mm -hmm. some, um, some pretty scathing letters in his day, although you didn't pick the most temperamental of them, but you, you did focus on his involvement in American Express. Tell us why you picked that sure. example. What, how does that help bridge this history? Well, I picked that for several reasons. The I mean, I gotta be honest, the first reason is it's Warren Buffett. So if you have one, it would have been criminal to leave that out of the book. But it, it is an atypical case uh, for the book because uh, Buffett uh, kind of plays the, the good guy for the company. So the company has been defrauded, they owe a lot of money to their claimants, the entities that had been defrauded. And American Express decided to do the right thing and to pay their claimants. And it turned out that the entity at American Express that had been defrauded was potentially a bankruptcy remote, and so they could have just potentially filed that for bankruptcy and ignored the claims. And there were some shareholders that said, hey, like you're paying out this money, but you don't you know, legally need to, and that's like a misuse of, of shareholder funds. And Buffett was like, no, 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 like you guys have a great brand. The people that have been defrauded are like these big banks that are your customers to protect the long-term value of this business, you know, you need to do the right thing here. And they did, and it turned out to be a very good thing for the morale at American Express. It turned out to be one of his best investments, yeah. right? And it was, a, it was a turning point uh, for Buffett because he had done a lot of this uh, Ben Graham-type uh, cigar butt investing before that and had done lots of activism. And with American Express, he found, well, this is a, a great business. You know, I'm going to let them do what they do and prevent anyone from trying to pillage it too soon. I mean, you know, Buffett, some would say that he's pulled his punches in recent years. I mean, mm -hmm. we could look at the Coca-Cola example, which you do mention in your book as well. Mm -hmm. He disagreed with the executive compensation plan, but it took another activist to kind of step in and make a big deal about it. Buffett disagreed with the plan, but rather than sort of speaking loudly about it, went privately to the, to yeah. the board. And do we, you kind of wish, I mean, how do you, you, you know, he made this transition from activism to value. Do you, do you kind of wish, as, a, as an acolyte of Buffett's, do you mm -hmm. wish that he kind of used the bully pulpit a little bit more? Well, I mean, I would say two things. I mean, I think he was probably good. I don't know. I mean, I don't know this, but it's unclear that the activist uh, drove him to go directly to Mutar Kent. He could have possibly done that on his own anyway. I mean, it's a hard question because I think a part of his greatness as an investor is his uh, temperament. And his uh, temperament is not that conducive to being the bully activist. And you know, um, um, early in his career, he had this investment in a windmill company. And he, he had to dismantle it to salvage his investment. And he became kind of like the town enemy in, in the town that he, like, that he had to close the main plant. And I think that he learned, you know, I don't want to do this you know, kind of a corporate rating. So, it's the way that he is. It's his, you know, disposition. He's the greatest investor ever. Just how his, like, how his yeah. evolution like, as an investor is. Yeah. Do we really need yeah. to want more? Right. But um, I mean, you know, I mean, it's interesting. Like the harshest that, like that I have ever seen, him uh, publicly be 
is he kind of um, issued a takedown of David Winters, the activist at Coke. And he said, look, this guy like, has underperformed every benchmark for his like, recorded history, and he's complaining about compensation. He's throwing rocks in a glass house. And I had never you know, uh, seen Buffett be that harsh. On so his most vocal was against an, an activist, yeah. actually. Yeah. The, um, you also suggest in the book, one more question about Buffett, that, that maybe even Berkshire Hathaway could one day become susceptible to an activist. And I mean, I think there's no doubt it will be. It's a conglomerate. It's hard to value. It has a lot of parts. And look, the markets are like they're not efficient. And so there will be periods that Berkshire is undervalued. And there will be shareholders that say, look, if we split this thing up, if it became clear to shareholders, you know, where the value is, you know, we're going to make money. And like as recently as, uh, as 2011, that was a very cheap stock. So I think there's no question that at some point, like you'll have some activists that, that try to shake things up there. So along with the American Express example in the book, you have seven others. You must have, mm -hmm. both as a professor, as a student of sort of history of investing, you must have dozens and dozens of these, maybe yeah. even hundreds. How did you pick the eight that you picked to yeah. put the book? I mean, it depended. Uh, there were some where it was like the personality, like, well, Benjamin Graham and Buffett, you have to like to put in. But there were some that you know, were in the book to represent a movement. So you had the Carl Icahn Phillips. You know, that whole chapter is about the corporate raiders. So there were so many good fights to choose from. You know, Saul Steinberg, Disney. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there was uh, so much like, you know, that I could have chosen, and like, you just have to pick one. Okay. And also for the proxy tiers, it was the same thing. There was like, yeah, a lot of great about, ones. Tell, tell us about the proxy tiers. I mean, it's an interesting sure. phase in history. And what, what exactly, who were they? What were they doing? Sure. So the proxy tiers were uh, um, essentially the raiders of the 1950s. And the stock market in the 50s was very different. It was, you know, there weren't the big uh, fiduciary investors, like the pension funds and the mutual funds, that began to emerge in the 60s. And so the shareholder base of public companies was individual shareholders. So people like you and me that owned a thousand shares. And the ownership was extremely diffuse. And so the proxy tiers to win their way um, into the boardroom had to run proxy fights. And they had to appeal to individual investors and they, you know, they did so with these um, entertaining uh, PR campaigns. And so it was a very f a fun era and it was the beginning of kind of these um, um, hostile interventions. Okay. And so for that one too, I had to pick one. There yeah. were lots to choose from. I kind of chose a, um, a, a, a Robert R. Young because he's a little bit the grandfather of the movement. Right. And so I picked that one. Yeah, that was an interesting one. What, um, if your editor had come back to you and said, uh, you know what, uh, Jeff, we've got room for, for one more actually mm -hmm. to put in the book. What, what would have been the ninth, the ninth yeah. case that you would have dropped in and why? Well, there were two that were really interesting. Um, Bill Schlensky against the Chicago Cubs, where he sued the Cubs to light uh, Wrigley Field. And that's the introduction of the book. But that could have been a whole chapter about the shareholder versus the, uh, the stakeholder debate. And there's a whole, you know, like a movement of kind of activism that's not like financially driven, but that is uh, socially driven. Right. And I could have done a good chapter on that. It just, it didn't quite fit in the book. Okay. Um, and then, I didn't do any chapter on the financial crisis, and there's a wonderful speech by uh, Wynn Smith, who was the, the grandson of Wynn Smith, who was a partner at Merrill Lynch. And he gave a speech at the shareholder meeting you know, to approve like, the fire sale of Merrill Lynch. And it was a scathing, angry at the board, 
you know, you guys have messed this up speech, and it's a, it's a wonderful speech, and it hurts me that, that I didn't get to include it in the book. For the next one, I guess. Yeah. What, um, you know, one of the interesting conclusions that you draw, or one of the observations you make, you feel like uh, activist investing is, is not a, a fad or a phase, which mm -hmm. is, I think, how a lot of people view it now because of the headlines, the personalities involved. Mm -hmm. You actually think that it's part of the firmament at this point in yeah. time. Talk about that a little bit. I mean, I get this uh, you know, a question all the time of like, has this peaked? Is the game over? And you do see these blooms, especially at the end of long bull markets. And so, you know, it ebbs and flows, but it's always, I mean, even in like the depths of, of, this, uh, of, of the 70s, you know, there were activists. There was, you know, um, Harold Simmons um, and Warren Buffett, you know, with Berkshire Hathaway. So it's always been here. It will always be here in the future. It will balloon in periods of, of optimistic bull markets. But you do have a dynamic now where it's becoming almost like an asset class. Like you have these institutional um, activist investors like Bill Ackman. He's going to have a lot of dry powder if the market tanks. Right. So it's not just going to go away when well, one the of, stocks get cheaper. But one of the, I guess, the, the questions that comes up is there's a lot of, you have multiple activists in the mm -hmm. same situation now, mm -hmm. um, which is perhaps suggestive of a lack of ideas or yeah. a, a, a top of a market, that kind of thing. Well, it's an interesting dynamic because in some ways it's very wasteful because, I mean, ultimately the company and their shareholders usually have to bear the costs of proxy fights. They they spend a lot on their defenses. And so when you have two activists involved in the same stock, it can get pretty messy. But ultimately, I mean, I love when that happens. And I think it's worth the cost because it forces the, the shareholders to like to actually put their thinking cap on. They have to listen to each of, of essentially the platforms. And they have to choose. And so it becomes less, do I want an activist or not? But OK, I have to pay attention to each of these guys' ideas. and so. Um, I really like when that happens, and it forces the, the passive institutions to raise their game. Now you don't end the book with any, you're very pointed about the fact that you don't have anything prescriptive to say. Mm -hmm. You're not, um, you know, you don't have fixes for corporate governance. In fact, you're, mm -hmm. in a way, you're critical of some activities by Lucien Bebchuk, although you don't name him, and you're not necessarily sure that splitting chairman and CEO is a fix for everybody. You know, so why not? What, yeah, I mean, it's hard. Like, I had a similar thing where I kind of came down against some big Canadian pension funds are doing this, you know, good governance index with the S&P. And I get the intentions. The, like, intentions are good. Like, I understand that they're trying to um, improve governments. And it's the same thing with uh, Bebchuk and the Harvard Initiative with the staggered boards. It's, I mean, I know these guys have their heart in the right place, I think. But I don't think that those are solutions. And they're kind of choosing weird targets and weird... A ways to, to do this that like, will only distort the system. So, I mean, ultimately, a governance is, is, like, is a thorny issue. You have these inherent conflicts of interest with the board and the CEO and the shareholders. And the way for the system to work is like, for everyone to be a little bit smarter and to use their brains more. So what is the takeaway then? What, why, what do you want people to read through this history and come away with um, understanding? I want them to, to come away with a broader knowledge. Like, you know, to be able to evaluate uh, situations uh, better, to understand the public company better. You know, the book, it's, like, it's about activism, but it's all, I mean, it's about business. It's, like, it's about the way that public companies work. So I'm trying to give background education. Like, I'm not trying to give a solution. I mean, I wish I could. I mean, I just don't have a solution. All right. Like, these issues are hard.
Jeff, I could geek out with you all day on this stuff, but thank you very much for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. That was really a lot of fun talking to Jeff, especially if you're a financial history nerd like me. I do wish Jeff had been able to pull together some more unifying themes, lessons, or suggestions on activist investing or corporate governance. Of course, there aren't any silver bullets. Each situation is different, and it's hard to develop blanket policies. But it does feel like all these examples should be instructive in some way. Maybe it's simply that there'll always be lazy boards and bad management, that each generation will have to develop its own set of activist investors to set things right. In the end, Jeff makes the case pretty strongly that these sometimes mouthy investors are a fixture of capital markets, even when it can sometimes seem like they're just a passing fad. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back with another Exchange podcast soon. If you like what you hear, subscribe to The Exchange on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, and check out our other Reuters podcasts on SoundCloud. Thank you.